Aloha and welcome to the Outrigger Waikiki where we're back with another Surfers in Residence. Uh, my name is Marco, I'll be your host today in for Tammy Moniz and big mahalo to everyone for the opportunity to sit down and talk today with legendary surfer, paddler, promoter, politician and local boy Fred Emmings. Local had to put boy. local boy in there. Yeah, you gotta put local boy in. That's my credentials. That's your credentials. That's all, that's your that's your memoir. Yes, exactly. Available on Amazon, but we'll talk about that a little later. So let's start at the very beginning. You were born and raised here in Hawaii. Can you tell us a little about your Ohana's uh, history? Yeah, I came from a home of modest means, and my my father uh, was a public worker, and my mother was a very devout Portuguese Catholic woman, and she, I was one of six kids, and we lived in Kaimaki. In fact, there'd be times when I had walked from Kaimaki down to this very location to come to the beach. My father was very enthralled with um, surfing and the beach activities, and he, he made us all join the Outrigger Canoe Club. Oh. Outrigger Canoe Club was founded in 1908 on this very spot. This corner. When I first walked down the beach to go my first surf, my toes went through these sands. It, in ancient times, well, not ancient, but in 1907, uh, there was a stream right here called Apua Kehau. On that side of the stream was the Moana Hotel, and this side of the stream was the Outrigger Canoe Club. And it's changed so much since then, hasn't it? And that, and that gave birth to the name Waikiki as well? It's exactly right. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of artesian well waters in, in Hawaii, and that's why you don't have a barrier reef here. You've got a sandy bottom because the fresh water stops the coral from growing heavily. And so you have a, a very open bay here and the stream came out right here, but there was also percolating streams or springs in Waikiki, hence the name Waikiki. Wai is freshwater. Mm -hmm. Kai is, of course, saltwater. And Kiki is percolating. So Waikiki was percolating freshwater. Oh, wow. Yeah. And right here on this beach, this is where you learned to surf. Right. Wow. And now Randy Rarick, who he was a wonderful guest, and you've got a rich history with him. One of the things that struck me was that he mentioned that he was very thankful that he got to Hawaii early enough to be raised with local values. What, what might you describe some of these local values to be that when you were growing up? Well, I think it's probably part of the magnificence of, of Duke and his fellow Hawaiians is, uh, and people always ask you, how do you define aloha? Is it a greeting? Is it a salutation? Is it mean love or something? And I think probably the best uh, description of aloha for me is that it represents a value, a system, where you are not a materialist. And the old you know, people don't care, you know, that how rich you are, how fancy you are. A lot of the wealthier guys from downtown would drive what we call juggalog cars. And, you know, they did not wear their wealth. Mm. And that's what I think Aloha is really all about, is it's weeks, with all due respect to Martin Luther King, we measure our relationships with the character and the spirit of the person, not their money's worth. You know, oh, that guy's got a big fancy car. Oh, he's wearing a Dunhill suit. He must be high muckety muck. Well, that's not the way we care about it. And we care about the, who the person is rather than what he is as far as money goes. And and so how old were you when surfing entered the picture? When did dad bring you down and get you on a board? I was a two or three-year-old little boy rolling around in this little shore break over here called Babies. So I, as long as I can remember, I was, you know, at this beach playing in the surf. Uh, I got my first surfboard when I was eight years old. Ew. And, you know, our, I think I mentioned our, I came from a whole modest means. 
my dad couldn't afford the state-of-the-art boards back then. And they, when I started surfing, the fanciest board you can get, this was before foam, was a balsa wood board. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were like $80, dollars so that was a lot of money back then. Sure. So I got an old hollow board, and I learned to surf on an old wooden hollow board. Which huh. were, you know, they, they were first made in 1935, and some of the older boards made it into the 50s. In 2010, you were inducted into the Waterman Hall of Fame. And since we're talking about old world Hawaii here, I think a lot of people don't appreciate or understand the importance and the role of the Waterman. Can you uh, elaborate a little about, about what it meant to be a Waterman? That's a really wonderful question because people put that label, oh, he's a Waterman, and they oftentimes give it to a surfer. Mm. Uh, and watermen are much more. Duke was a waterman because he he ran the panoply of all the water sports. You know, he was the world's greatest swimmer. He was the world's greatest surfer. He was a body surfer. He sailed. He was the best steersman. Uh, he could ride waves in a canoe. So he was a waterman. There's a lot of people like, I think, one of the world's greatest athletes in all sports is Kelly Slater. Well, Kelly Slater is not really a waterman. He's a surfer. Right. And so there's a, a waterman is is a person who has skills in many disciplines in the ocean sports. And Duke was the ultimate waterman. And the stories that I hear of watermen and it sort of blends into Beach Boys that there are some super characters, some real superhero char- characters. So what was it like being a kid around? Can you describe uh, maybe some memories of some of these gentlemen and and just their their role on the beach? They were the backbone of what the Waikiki experience was all about, and I, I'm worried now as a, as a you know, Kekioka and a young boy who grew up in Hawaii, but no, I don't have Hawaiian blood, uh, mostly Portuguese. But the, I'm worried that we don't have them. We're 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 losing Hawaiians in Hawaii. When I was a little boy, all the beach boys right here on this beach were all pure Hawaiian, mm-hmm. and they had genuine aloha. They were full full of frivolity and goodness and, and great character and you know they'd take Bing Crosby out surfing one day and the next day they'd take out you know a paper boy from Kaimaki you know they nice. they had no no criteria of the financial worth or anything like that back to your Hawaiian value back to your Hawaiian value yeah. so the Beach Boys lived a little as did Duke now you were a paddling star as well as a surfer star was there ever a moment where paddling was threatening and surfing or did the two co-mingle did they just really they fit? was they fit pretty well together I would imagine okay <laughs> and was there ever any thoughts of, of, of trying to elevate paddling into a professional sport as you did surfing no uh, it's it's a team sport and it's it's oh, that's true. That's it's, a good more of a, it's more of a cultural sport than than uh, the logical step for surfing, because it was evolving so quickly, was professionalism. Because a lot of the young surfers had to go around the world mm-hmm. to compete. And, you know, I went to Peru and Australia, and so it get pretty expensive to compete in the in the world's contests. So uh, professionalism helped them underwrite uh, their costs. And of course, that's where all major sports go. They always, you know, go from amateurism in college to to the professional level. And there's some people who criticize that say of prostituting you know the sport but mm-hmm. it's done pretty good for the sport it, it gave us legitimacy where we commanded some respect in in other areas besides the sports arena and how did that get started because i'm trying to think of how you started competing in other countries before there was actually a tour you were just going on your own well and th- and there's a there's another story to be told here in hawaii and uh 
it's called hidden, I call it hidden heroes. And there are a lot of people that had tremendous impact on today's surfing or whatever the, the issue is, uh, but we just don't recognize them. And one of the great heroes of modern day competitive surfing, I would say, was a man named Wally Forsyth and his wife. And, and they were at Waikiki Surf Club, and in the early 50s, they started something called the Makaha International Championships. Okay. And they had a lot of contests here, but this was the first one devoted towards having surfers from other parts of the world. So they'd go out of their way to have surfers from Australia. Uh, I met all my Peruvian friends here in Hawaii. Uh, they come from the Peru to surf and East Coast, West Coast surfers. So it really spread the uh, awareness of surfing as a competitive sport internationally. And that was the Macaulay International Surfing Championship. Uh, so they got the global awareness. Uh, well, they, they built an international interest in competitive surfing. And, uh, Interesting. And when I was 18, I, I did pretty good in the Macaulay contest. And so they invited me to Peru, and I Peru surfed in the, the first Peruvian International Surfing Contest uh, in a place called Punta Hermosas, south of Lima. So surfing is very big in Peru. There's a story to be told, though, that I think, needs to be told, needs to be reiterated, especially young surfers that realizes how wondrous surfing is in a sense of, uh, when you think in retrospect, back through time, how many cultures lived on the ocean, you know, how many peoples went for fishing or traveling or whatever, through surf every day to go wherever they're going, you know, off the beach or something. And guys would be standing on the beach and they'd see these beautiful waves breaking but all the ancient Hawaiians saw pleasure. Yeah. And they saw means to ride waves. And guys like to think of surfboard revolution in you know, the late 60s when we went from long boards to short boards. Well, Hawaiians were riding uh, short boards a thousand years ago. Right. Uh, they, Shows an incredible connection to the ocean. Yeah. They, 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 they learned first to play with the, the, the surf was their playground. And then number two, they had, took different equipment to it. You know, they took short boards. Uh, which were alaia boards, and they took long boards, which are old boards. They took body boards. People think, oh, the, the Mori Boogie board's the first body board. Well, I'm sorry. You're about a thousand years late on that one. <laughs> Just a little late yeah. for the party. <laughs> I know. What, what was the inspiration when you created the, the, when you launched the first professional event in 68 and the Pipeline Masters in 71, which I have to add, continues to this day 50-some-odd years later? Yeah, what inspired it. that professional, that one step further? It uh, was inspired by... The evolution of the sport where people were going around the world competing these amateur events and they, they couldn't afford it, you know. And so mm. I the next logical step in the growth of great sports is, prof I mean, the last stop for all sports is professionalism. Not all sports, but most of the sports, you know, and especially the soccer and ball sports that are practiced internationally, you, know, you always have a professional component to it. So it, it, it affords the best, the money and time to improve the sport, there you go, because they don't have to go home and uh, see a, a, you know, their partner in marriage. Yeah. Hey, what the hell were you doing all day? You know, right? Well, I was serving. <laughs> and pro and progressing anything usually takes an investment, yeah. and often a financial but one. You'd be surprised what happened in the late '60s was drugs, LSD, and I don't. You're probably too young to know about LSD, but surfing became a jada sport where it kind of got bifurcated, and there was. The guys like myself who were pretty straight, mm -hmm. and then there's guys that went off on a trip, right? You know, and and so they were quite critical of me. Those that element of the sport of surfing, uh, 
I, I had a guy writing a surfing magazine that Fred Hemmings was fornicating with Mother C. So that's where Randy said something to that. Now I understand where that came from. Yeah, yeah. Because so, we were talking about how some people didn't even think it should be evaluated because it was an art form and that you couldn't actually judge it. That's right. Yeah. And, and there's a very logical and, and I think unrefutable response to that. Oh, how do you judge gymnastics? Right. Ice you know, skating. I, there's no finisher starting point. There's no boundaries. You, you, right. look, you look at the art, and that, that, that person yeah. did it really well, and they didn't wipe out. So yeah. they get a eight points. You know. And now, were there any other sports? That's a great analogy as far as getting people to understand the framework of how you might judge it. Were there any other that you looked towards as far as organizing it? Because Randy talks about you showing up on the beach with a folding table and a bullhorn. So, I mean, it must have been pretty rough in the, that, those first couple rounds. Oh, you know? no, there was no sponsorship. I <laughs> was flying by the seat of my pants. No, the first pipeline, uh, and like I said, it's what, 72 years ago. You? That's a, I mean, no, 52. 52, yeah. It's yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, we invited six, six people, um, the sponsors, fell out at the last moment of the, so the, the one company put up the prize money and there were six guys in it. And so we just cordoned off a little with, you know, with some bunting uh, and we put a coffee table and that was the official stand. And then there were six judges sitting in chairs oh. and we sent, we sent six guys in the water and uh, God bless them. Jeff Hackman won the first one. That's awesome. Yeah. It was six guys. The first place winning was five hundred dollars. We had a thousand dollar purse, which I had to put up out of my own pocket. Well, but I believed in it, you know. And I, yeah. I, I, I thought, well, this is you got to start somewhere. At some point, this evolved from this card table on the beach with six judges to becoming a commentator for the wide world of sports. I like to think that one of my assets is innovation, and I knew I had to do things a little different or innovate in order to make ends meet. And one of the big things that surfing doesn't have that all other most other sports have, especially professional sports, is we didn't have a gate. So we couldn't right. collect a million dollars for guys sitting in the stands, you know, Gosh. 300 bucks a seat. So we didn't have that money. And all we had to do was uh, find another revenue source. So and here's another hidden hero. They had the Duke Hanamoku Surfing Classic, which, you know, I was buying, involved in. And I decided to start professional surfing. So I convinced the, the gentleman who was filming uh the Duke Classic for CBS Sports Spectacular, uh, Larry Lindbergh, to come cover the pipeline. And he did. And then we, you know, he said, well, you know, we've got NBC and CBS now. We got to get ABC. And so ABC used to be on the McCullough contest. So we got ABC to come to the North Shore to do another contest. And so I had events at all three Dwendorps. And you have to remember back then, there was no cable television. You, you watched right. ABC. Uh, wide World of Sports, CBS Sports Spectacular, NBC Sports World. They were there, what they call the anthology series, where every week they'd have a different sport. Sure. And they all love surfing. I mean, especially the guys that come from New York to cover it. Yeah. And to watch something like that on the mainland, it's so foreign. I mean, it's so it's beautiful to watch, and it's nothing you're going to see in your hometown. They were very they were very clever because they'd come here and shoot the contest in December, as your our competitive month. They'd go back and edit it, but they'd. Late January or February, when it's just a blizzard back, you know, I mean, you can't, you walk down Fifth Avenue, you freeze to death. They'd have this guy standing on the beach with just swim trunks on surfing. You know, the guys would go, oh, man, that that's the life, you know. Everybody wants that job. Yeah, I want that job. And now, so talking about I want that job, how did this translate into a desire to get involved in politics? 
Well, I think part of it's my body chemistry and psychological chemistry. I'm interested. I got, for lack of a better description, ADD. Okay. I have, I have a hard time staying at something for a long time. I see, I see something else. Oh, I want to go here and take a shot at that. You know, and mm -hmm. constant innovation. Yeah, constant. Inno that's a <laughs> good line. I have a little bit of that hey, myself. Yeah, that's very <laughs> constant innovation. So. Uh, I, I, I like to plant seeds, and once the seeds take hold and start growing, I go somewhere else and plant seeds. And so um, I'm concerned about Hawaii, and I don't want to get into politics in this happy show. Right. Uh, but we can do a lot better, and we're not. Uh, you know, the vital statistics, the quality of life here, rich live here because they can afford to, the poor live here because they can't afford to leave. But more states, it's losing population. Last year, we lost, we lost residents, and the cost of living and— you know, the homelessness and the infrastructure problems, highest gas taxes, worst roads. I'm concerned about these things. Right. And so I decided to try to do something about it. But even though I was the wrong political label for Hawaii, uh, I got a lot done by innovating yeah. or going around the system to, to get it done. For instance, um, Governor Linda Lingo, who was our one and only Republican governor in the last half century, I became friends with her. And in my district was a 25th senatorial district, which included the windward side, but it also included the Northwest Archipelago, everything from Nihoa Rock to Kirie Atoll, which is, you know, a bunch of sandbars, except for Midway, mm -hmm. of course, had, had a runway and some houses on it. And um, not an environmentalist. I think environmentalists sometimes are more anti-capitalism than pro-environment. You are a lover of the ocean. <laughs> I'm a conservationist. I want, sure. to, I want to save things, protect things. And so I went to the Governor Lingo, and God bless her, and told her I wanted to make the Northwest Archipelago a uh, protected area, a marine reserve. And they'd been tinkering with making, you know, territorial water marine reserves. Mm -hmm. And she said, that's a great idea. And uh, she went to George Bush, who she worked with very closely, and they were good friends. And so I got a call from the White House, come have dinner with the president. And you know, nice. I sat in the White House, had dinner with the president. We sat around the table. We talked about uh, protecting the Northwest Islands, which were already in kind of a protective status, but they weren't off limits. And so uh, the president, uh, about a month later, called me back, or the White House called me back, come on up, we're going to sign the documents and making it a sanctuary. And so we created uh, the Apahanao Mokuakea Sanctuary, which is protects the wildlife up there from inundation by fishermen. And, and I'm told it's the largest marine sanctuary. The largest marine sanctuary in the world. Because it, it goes out to federal waters and it goes, you know, 800,000 miles. I don't wow. know. Kiria Atoll is the the last atoll up there. I often talk about Hawaii, uh, do a history of Hawaii talk. And when I talk about the geological side of Hawaii, people don't realize we're we're a living state. Uh, the Big Island right now, Kilauea is sure. pouring lava into this work. We were born. But we're born under the ocean in fissures or fault zones where the ocean opens up and the lava perks up, and finally it perks up to it becomes an island. Off the southeast flank of the big island, where the hot spot is, is an underground seamount called Lo'ihi. And someday, thousands of years from now, it will be an island. And thousands of years from now, there will be no more Kirei Atoll. It will sink under the... Wow. Under the so... Our islands are born from the sea. They live their life. They travel to the Northeast. 
and then they die in the sea. That's so poetic. That's beautiful. Uh, it is, isn't it? It's marvelous. Absolutely wonderful. Well, first of all, congratulations on creating such an amazing legacy, this, this uh, marine sanctuary. But it reminds me of one of my favorite Hawaiian phrases, and it's a title of one of your books, uh, Can, No Can. And I love Billy, <laughs> Billy Kanoi's twist on it, which is, if no can, still can. Yeah. That's my favorite. Billy told me that one. I love uh, uh, Billy if, Pratt. If no can, try anyway, bro. <laughs> I love that, if no can, still can. So how, t just tell me a little a little about this, because this, to me, is is another Hawaiian value, essentially. Can, can no can goes along with um, no big thing. Right. You know, uh, you say, oh, man, I, I missed that. Oh, I missed that wave. Well, no big thing. There'll be more. You know, yeah, yeah. Don't, what are you sweating about? Right. There are a lot of waves, you know. Right. You miss that one, the next one's coming along. You know, I miss this, I miss that. I say, ah, no big thing, no big thing. There was a great buddy of mine that uh, I grew up with. His name was Chubby Mitchell. He was about 300 pounds. He was the epitome of the merriment and goodness of a Hawaiian. Hmm. He was just he he, he like do no, no no negatives, and he stuttered real bad. Freddie, Freddie, we we go surf. Really? Yeah. So he stuttered real bad, and so I get I'm a little bit of Portuguese in me. I'm half Portuguese, which I'm very proud of, by the way. And uh, I'd get excited about something. Freddie, Freddie, if can can, if no can, no can. Yeah. You know, yeah. what, what are you? What, what are you so excited about? No right. can, Bob. You know, move on to the next thing. So I thought it was very apropos to to title my book, Can, No Can, and God bless Chubby. It was a, yeah. Chubby went, we took Chubby with us to Peru in the 1965 First World Championships in Lima, where they had really international teams, not just people showing up. And uh, he, was a, he was like a rock star down there. We took Buffalo. And, okay. Yeah. So those we, are all legends I've heard of. Oh man, it just—it was just absolutely most enchanting week of surfing down there. But he was—he was down there, and he—he he was an amazing guy, three hundred pounds, and he surfed like a ballet dancer. He had the gracefulness of a of a much leaner man, but he just was poetic in how he'd surf. That's amazing. It is amazing when you think about it. It's not easy. Now, of the many things that that you are, I'm told that you're an expert on all things Hawaii surf. And do come do Kahanamoku. So I'd love to take a moment to maybe talk about a few of the tall tales about Duke, if you don't mind being the the authority on the subject here. First off, is it fair to say that he fulfilled the prophecy of uh, King Kamehameha that the Hawaiian would travel the world and spread the culture? Oh, no doubt about it. Undeniably, he, he right? was undeniably Hawaii's greatest and best ambassador. And there's incredibly romantic tales about Duke and. What a magnificent man he was uh, in in competitive sports, but in day to day life, and then just his relationship with everybody. You know, he just embraced everybody by the values of who they were and what they represented. He was tremendously competitive nationally, but he wasn't driven to the point that it was a problem. Yeah, there's a wonderfully romantic story about him going to Australia for the first time. And Australia had, uh, and this was after he'd won a couple of Olympics. It was 1915. He won the 1912. He went down there to put on a swimming demonstration, and he swam against the Australian national champion. And this guy was defending Australia's honor swimming against this Hawaiian. And uh, as the story goes, uh, Duke was sufficiently ahead, but in the last two laps of the race, 
he slowed down a bit to very discreetly let the guy yeah. finish just ahead of him. And if that doesn't speak well of a man with right. with a true aloha and a heart, uh, nothing does. He's the that that was the magic of Duke. And when you, you know when you, I got, I got to talk about time, but just let me mention this: when you go through life, you you bring along with you certain treasures. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping more kids that I tell my kids this. In fact, I'm telling my kids, when I die, you're not going to get any money. I'm going to give you memories now. So we go all over the world and taking some granddaughters and my daughter to Madeira, Portugal, our homeland and the Portuguese side of the family. But the great treasures given to me in my growing up were memories. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine spending the last three years of his adult life with Duke Kahanamoku and traveling around the world representing Hawaii and yeah. and having the good fortune of sitting next to this man. And uh, I got to tell you a cute story, and I tell it all the time. We went, Kimo McVeigh was a promoter, and he started a little restaurant in the back of the international marketplace called Duke Kahanamoku's. And Duke was, you know, it was Duke's restaurant, so all the tourists would come. There was none of this. No, you know, there was the Moana Hotel and you know, the, the Royal Hawaiian, and uh, they built a little hotel across the street from the Moana called the Biltmore. It was a, the, the first high rise, I think it was 12 stories or something. <laughs> but anyway, in the back of the marketplace amongst the freshwater ponds, percolating water, Waikiki, mm-hmm. was Duke Kanaboka's restaurant. And uh, Kimo McVeigh um, uh, was a great entrepreneur from the Wilder family, which was a very famous local family. He started Duke's and he, he hired Duke. Duke was kind of taken for granted. Hey, Duke, do this, do that, blah, blah. But no one ever provided for Duke. And Kimo really mentored him and took care of him. Got him a Rolls Royce, got him a driver. And Duke lived as he should as royalty the last several years of his life. Well, make a long story short, we made the Duke surf team and all of us went uh, when Don Ho. Oh, by the way, Kimo McVeigh discovered a little entertainer in Honey's Lounge at Kaneohe. And the guy's name was Don Ho. Brought him the Dukes of Waikiki. And the mess, well, the next thing you knew, Kim was having a hard time counting his money because there were, there'd be 300, 300 people lined up every night to pay back then five buck cover charge, and, yeah. you know, to, to go see Don Ho. So he was just awash in money, not that it made any difference to him. We went to the Coconut Grove where Don Ho was debuting the first his first mainland show. And so we were there staying at the, uh, the hotel there, the Ambassador, I think it is. And Duke arranged to, uh, I mean, Kimo Bay arranged to get a Rolls Royce and take the Duke surf team to Malibu to surf. So with us was um, uh, Butch Van Archdale, who was the first Mr. Pipeline. And uh, Paul Strau was probably the most graceful, graceful surfer you've ever wanted to see myself and Duke. And we go to Malibu, and I know I'm not good at surfing waves three feet or under, and it's like three feet. Right. So the guy, you know, Paul and uh, Butch go, oh, yeah, it looks good. Let's go, sir. And so they go out. I say, well, you guys go. I'm going to stick with Duke. And so um, Duke and I sat in the car. And one thing I learned from the old Beach Boys and from Duke is how to take a nap. Yes, I heard he was an, uh, that was on my list. He's a, he's an expert napper. Oh, well, all, all the Beach Boys were. I mean, the Beach Boys, my dad especially the ones who like to drink beer and, and go out with ladies at night. Mm-hmm. They'd all work all day here surfing, and then they'd come under an old how tree. It was right here. The how yeah. tree was right here over the side at the old Outrigger Duke Club between the Outrigger and the Moana, and they'd lay out those toppy mats, and they'd, they'd all take naps. So 
I got in that habit too. I'd lay down with a guy, you know, we're sleeping right out here for 45 minutes. Then you wake up and you either go back and get a couple of sunset waves or, or you start your you start your evening. So uh, long story short, Duke and I sat in the car and slept. Well, <laughs> the boys went, sir, I Malibu with this big promoter, you know, we're in the car, <laughs> you know, with Duke sleeping. Uh, now, so was this, it's little things like that that just warm your heart, you know, these, all these years later. Now, was this the same trip that he literally asked for the shirt off your back? No, that was another trip. Okay, yeah. tell us about that one. Well, Kimo McVeigh was, uh, oh, God bless him, I, I, I love the guy. He, he was quite an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted to start Duke Hanamoku lines of products. So he went to Kahala Sportswear, and he got the Norfleet family, which ran Kahala, to make Duke Hanamoku shirts. Mm-hmm. And they're, you can get them in the lobby of this yeah, hotel yeah, yeah. to this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had this one Pario print that was really popular. And so there was one in yellow, there was one in blue, and there's some famous pictures of us all. You know, Butch had the uh, red one on, you know, Paul had the yellow one on. Yeah, had the yeah, yeah. Joey Cabell had the green one on. I had the blue one on. So we go to Randy Rubber Company, which was making Top Sider shoes. I don't know if you remember Top Sider shoes. Yeah, and the Vans. Yeah. They thought that they were so smart because they... They put colored canvas. Oh, they, they they made a blue shoe, and they made a white shoe, and they made a yellow shoe, and they said, we can put any material on a shoe. And and, that. and we say, any material? And Duke looks at, him, looks at me and says, hey, Freddie. Oh, boy. He called me boy all yeah. Boy, give him your shirt. So I take I take my shirt off. <laughs> they want to get me some T-shirt or something to put on. And they send this this uh, Aloha shirt to the machine, and it comes out uh, Aloha print sneakers, and or topsiders, and they were a hit, absolute hit for about two or three years. You know, everybody had to have the. Did Aloha. you get those shoes? Who got those shoes? The, the first ones? No, I, I don't remember. It was, was your first, shirt. But I got a lot. You know, I of course, for mostly, I got one of each color. You know. Oh, okay. But there's a famous picture of us sitting back here in front of Duke Hanamoko's in an old Koa canoe, uh, on on the edge of it. And Duke's standing there leaning against the boat in the with our shoes on. It was uh, Joey, Paul, and myself. And uh, we had our Duke sneakers on. And, nice. And they became a big hit. They became a big hit. Okay, now another another legend. I heard you mention that he had, that Duke had paddles for hands and fins for feet. You know, people, you know, wonder why the guy was so much ahead of everybody else when it came to swimming. And, his, and you know, most everything else he did in the ocean, well, he was, Naturally, an ocean man, a uh, natural athlete. But uh, what people didn't add up was, I think he had size 12 feet. Okay. Big feet. They were like fins, you know, a lot of propulsion. And he had massive hands. You could shake his hand and he would swallow your hand, you know. So, and he was strong. So when he'd go, you know, he's getting a lot of pull and push from mm-hmm. his, his feet and his hands. So. My supposition is, I can't prove anything, yeah, yeah. that that would add a lot to his swimming ability. It certainly didn't hurt. Just the plain physics of it. Sure. And he invented the double flutter kick that Mike Phelps uses to yes. win a goal? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, he was a you know natural guy. He just, right. He, he just it came to him naturally. He didn't have to think, well, what, what am I going to do next? He just right. did it. You know, it right. came to him. And we, we wouldn't be doing him service if we didn't talk about the famous ride. So from Castles, right out there. So tell me a little about this ride. I've heard other people tell, but I want to hear from the authority. I've told this story many, many times, and I will preface it with this observation. You ask any surfer to tell a surfing story, 
and they'll tell you an exquisite story about the wave they rode. Mm-hmm. I rode a wave and, you know, blah, blah, blah. They'll tell you detail. I did it off the lip, and then, you know, I had to tie tuck it, and they'll tell you everything they did. Well, this ride is one of the only rides that um, is a historic ride that everybody else tells of this ride. Ah, they tell us the so. other surfers' ride, so you don't have that happen often. And uh, I have a long version or a romantic version or a short version. Which one do you want? Uh, up to you. We'll let the chef choose. <laughs> well, I'll try to split the difference. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was uh, 1917. It was early in the morning here, right here. Mm-hmm. And the, the old surfboards, which back then were all wood, we're in the lockers here at the Outrigger, and there's huge surf pounding, and what we call it first break now. Well, when occasionally, like they call the swell of the decade, every once in a while, an unusual swell comes through. You got to remember these waves march from as far away as Tahiti, and they come here and they end up being 15, 18 foot waves. It's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. And so the, they're all standing here and they're looking out to sea, and they see these, you know, and it's kind of like, do we want to go out kind yeah, of deal, you yeah. know? And um, Castles is out there past that sailing boat there. Out Amazing there. that we can just turn and look at it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. It's where the aqua nearshore waters start to dive into the end of the island and the water becomes blue. So it's, you know, it's a, what you call a deep water break when it's real big. Mm-hmm. And it was had to be 15 to 20 feet for that kind of swell. Wow. Which is like, Yeah, it's like the swell of the decade. And uh, so Duke, I think, heard the call, call of the wild, the call yeah. of the waves, whatever it yeah. was. And he told his buddies, yeah, we got to go ride these waves. And I learned a great lesson from him that, that helped me competitively. And it, it's it's kind of a rhetorical question. And I ask a surfer sometimes, would you rather catch a lot of good waves or would you rather wait and catch the best wave? It's a a good question, yeah. Helped me win a big contest in Puerto Rico in 1968 because they only judge your top three waves. Mm -hmm. And in our finals, I only caught five waves. But they were the five best waves. Right. Heat. You know, so... Quality over quantity. Yeah, 10 seven-point waves will get beat by three eight-point waves every time because they only take three. And that's the lesson I learned from Duke because Duke was the guy that would sit outside to wait for the sets, the big waves. Right. And as the, now it's a legend, but as the story goes, and it's true, Duke and his buddies, they paddle out there. It's, a, it's, it's about a mile to where that boat is. And they paddle, they paddle, paddle, paddle. And some of the guys Duke was with were catching the waves in the inside. And Duke just sat patiently outside. And he developed a sixth sense sometimes. And sure, I think humankind is so caught up with thinking we only perceive things with our five senses. Well, right. We have other senses. There's no doubt about that. I would agree. The sharks would know that because they know when you're scared. Duke waited on the outside, and he sensed, I think, yeah. something was coming, and he started paddling out a bit and angling more into the bay to get, get in the right position to catch a wave. And he spun his board around. The guys on the inside, they, 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 were, they were washed out. They weren't going to get anywhere near these waves. And he took off on a wave, and he rolled in through castles, through outside Publix, through a break that was outside of the Kuna's <laughs> house. They called it Kuna's. And then in outside Queens, then he rolled to right outside here, outside Canoe Surf, and then the wave closed out, and he, ro- and he rolled to the beach. Just connected one after another. One after another. And um, 
course, it was you know it's the ride of the century. Everybody knows they're you know it's 2023 and they're still this is 1917. We're still talking about. I'm still talking about. Mm-hmm. And I'm still asking about it. Yeah, and you're still asking about it. <laughs> that was the wave that that everybody remembers as legendary, uh, and it was Duke Kanemoku. And now he he wasn't just a legendary surfer. He saved many lives, including eight from a single shipwreck. I I saw in the documentary. Yeah. And a lot, I think a lot of people think of him as this charismatic hero, but a, a true lifesaver. Yeah. How did he wear that? I mean, that's... He didn't. He, 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 it was he, just another day. It was just another day. You know, the word kokua. Yeah. He'd look at it as kokua. I help where I can. He was had a real love for his fellow man, and he expressed it through deeds rather than words. True law is a value system. It's not a... Right. Salutation. How could you describe his funeral? How did Hawaii going go about celebrating or honoring the loss of such a hero? I've seen pictures, but I can't imagine what it must have been like to have been there. Yeah, there are, there are times, some of them happened with Duke in my life, that, that you see forces at work that, that are beyond the obvious and the natural. You, know, you see, you know, something that's, it was right here. And there were canoes lined up on the beach, and many of them were koa canoes because fiberglass was in there, just just starting. And um, we had the ceremony there, and Nadine carried his ashes to the, to the canoe. The Kabowee was the name of the canoe. And they, you know, his family paddled the ashes out the ocean out here. And um, it was kind of a windy, blustery day, and... As I recall it, because I was in a canoe, uh, the wind stopped blowing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, you know, divine ordinance or something that mm-hmm. the hand of God came down and he just sort of sort of participated. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a be- that's a that's a fitting fitting moment that I could see that his. Uh, yeah. That his, that his hand of God came down to take Duke home. Wow. Okay. That's really wonderful. And I hear quite a few of your family is following in your footsteps as paddlers and surfers. Well, all our family is we're children of the surf. Keiki Oonalo, you know, we're, we're surfers and paddlers, and that's our lifestyle. And God bless it. We're, we're very fortunate. You mentioned some admiration. So do you feel that the current heroes like Lenny Kai and Kelly Slater are living up to the standards? They've got big shoes to fill, you know. Just when you think it can't get any better, it does. Ah, wonderful. That's awesome. These guys are on a whole other planet, Mm -hmm. you know. And there's incredible things happening in surfing. Uh, Pretty good friends with Kelly. Mm -hmm. He invited me up to the opening of his wave machine in in, uh, California. Mm. So in the Agricultural fields outside Fresno is the best surf in California. Mm. You know, on a good day, unless Malibu's going off or something, right. you know, there's a three, four, five foot wave in, in Kelly's pool that has a perfect climb and drop shoulder and then a tube, which really, you really get barreled in, wow. which is very hard to do. And then, you know, it's the best wave in California right now, probably. It's getting better. You know, innovation is. Serving is a, the, the greatest innovative sport in the world. And I'll explain why I think that's a true statement, and I'll challenge any other sports person to, cha- to challenge me. Uh, any other sport has 
boundaries. And even gymnastics, which is a very artistic sport, they have certain maneuvers you do and they're worth so many points. So you sure. you know, blah, 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 okay, he gets this point. Surfing, you're out surfing and kind of good, good competitive surfers watch the surf and they know what the pattern of the waves are and how big they are and all those things, how, how, how frequent the sets are. Uh, uh, World Championship in Puerto Rico, they judged the best three waves. In an hour, I only caught five. Mm. You know, Nat Young caught 20 waves. Midget Farley got 18 waves. You know, I was waiting for the biggest of the best, and that's, you know, the margin of difference. So competitive surfers nowadays, uh, they're very creative in their, 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 their serving. And you, you can be out in a competition and you say, well, in your mind, on the next wave, let's say Sunset Beach, I'm going to drop to the bottom, I'm going to stall into the peak, I'm going to hook under the peak, I'm going <laughs> to drive up the shoulder, bounce off the top, and, you know, I'm going to do all this. And you catch the next wave, and you got to go like a bat out of hell just to make it. You know, right. oh, it's, you know I'm going to make that one. You know, you're in a crouch for the praying that you make the damn wave. And, and uh, Plans go out the window. Yeah, plans go out the window. <laughs> and that's kind of, that's a good line. I'm going to use that. Please. With surfing, uh, plans go out the window. You, you. You take what you got, and yeah. it might not be what you want. You're performing on an ever-changing surface. That's exactly. See, even the gymnast has the same balance beam. Yeah, exactly, or the same parallel bar. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. That, you've got to be so adaptive, which yeah. I think would would help you in life and politics and all these other things that you've yeah, done. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. And and of all these all these achievements, this might be a loaded question. So, uh, you know, uh, father of, of professional surfing, you know, you helped with the archipelago. archipelago. Um, was there any one ach achievement that you that you consider yourself most proud of, or is that like asking a parent, you know, which kid you love? You can't, you can't. That's, what, I, that's what I'm most proud of, my my kids and grandkids. Your kids, all right. And grandkids. And grandkids. Yeah. But you're taking to Portugal. Yes. Well, right I'm taking. On. I told you the story. I'm, yeah. They're not going to get any money. Hey, they'll get a trip. But, yeah. Papa died. Well, you're not going to get anything. Well, my friends in, in New York. I'm giving them a gift. Memories. Yes. I've taken kids to Peru to surf to Puerto Rico. To Beirut, France, mm -hmm. uh, to freshwater Australia, where Duke rode the first wave. That's a wonderful story, by the way. And um, so these kids are going to have memories. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're going to, I went about four years ago with my son uh, to Madeira, Portugal, where our Portuguese side of the family came here in 1893 from Madeira on a sailing ship. And so we can go to the little village of my family's from Santa Lucera in the mountains. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely exquisite. And it's a really understated culture, the Portuguese are. Mm -hmm. I don't want to brag about Portuguese, but all the great navigators of the world were from Portugal. And well, and now it's thrust back into the center with Nazare. Everybody's always well, talking about Nazare and Nazare. Yeah. So now, now, it's, now everybody's exactly. going to start claiming they're from Portugal, right? Yeah, exactly. So the Portuguese are, I like to think, are good men and women of the ocean. I, I like the idea, though, of leaving everyone with the memories because uh, a friend of my family, they, they said, in my family, we don't inherit money, we inherit recipes, which the recipe, again, just yeah. essentially cult yeah. culture. You can carry it on, you know. Yeah. You, you create new memories for, for your kids, your yeah. grandkids, and they'll they'll do the same for theirs. And uh, we have some great memories. We're lucky. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing them with us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you to Fred Hemmings for joining us today. Uh, you can find his book, Local Boy, a memoir on Amazon with other titles. You have many, many, you authored many books. And as always, if you enjoyed this conversation today and you want to see more, please just hit like and subscribe on the bottom of your screen. And in the meantime, mahalo for watching and aloha. Aloha.